Welcome to the podcast, the destination for insightful discussions and interviews on the appreciation, conservation, and husbandry of reptiles with a focus on turtles and tortoises. Now, let's join our team of turtle nerds. Yeah, it might be. <clears throat> welcome. Welcome, yeah. welcome, welcome to the podcast. Episode 74. We are here. Um, for your viewing pleasures and very excited to be here. Um, we have with us uh, a wonderful esteemed guest who we're so excited to talk to. And, and we really think it's a nice follow-up from the last episode that we had, where we can actually talk to someone who knows about what we were talking about, you know, the ins and outs of, of what conservation really is and what it really takes to do it um, at, a, at, a, at a high level, um, I guess for lack of a better way of explaining it. But um, so I'm Anthony, you know, Kevin and also Chris, we're here. Um, our guest is Dr. Dante Finolio, who is um, the vice president of conservation and research for the San Antonio Zoo. Um, the amount of projects that you oversee, Dante, are vast. He already told us that we can call him Dante. Uh, <laughs> normally, normally, I always say Doc or Doctor so and so. Um, the amount of things that you oversee are are so vast, and and I'm just excited to to talk to somebody who has um, the amount of experience that that you do. So thank you so much for being here and and being willing to share that with us a little bit. Hey guys, thank you so much for having me. It's no problem at all. Uh, can you speak a little bit, I, I hate to do the cliche thing and talk about kind of early on, but can you talk about what kind of got you into this and, and what that was like? I know a few stories because I'm a bit of a fan of yours. I, I've got, I've got your book. We'll talk about it a little bit later. Oh, wow. Life in the dark. Yep. Yep. <laughs> which I think, which I think is, is the coolest. And I don't mean this in a bad way at all. Like, like a Kramer from Seinfeld way, but like, is like the coolest coffee table book that I've ever had because like it's so <laughs> stunning visually and, and all of that. So, so you've, you've done amazing things, but like to get to that, just kind of what that, what that start is like. Um, I had the amazing fortune of growing up <clears throat> with first off, my dad and my grandfather were avid outdoorsmen, um, hunting, fishing, camping, hiking, um, I spent a ton of my youth out in the forest and, uh, they were really good, um, out in the field and, and taught me a lot from a very young age. But my dad had a company where he imported aquarium fish, uh, from all over the world, uh, both fresh and salt water. He had his own collection state stations in Indonesia and the Hawaiian islands. They were all hand netted fish. Uh, he was one of the early folks who raised the, the warning <laughs> flags about cyanide use in, in, um, marine fish collection and, and then, um, dynamite use in marine fish collection and was avid, um, an avid opponent to all of that. But he knew that, uh, from a very young age, I was interested in amphibians and so he started to tell his business partners all around the world that he had a kid that was into frogs. And when a box of fish would come in from somewhere like Columbia, little bags of gift frogs started showing up wow. in the fish boxes. <laughs> and um, I, can, I can tell you that at five years old, I had 
poison frogs that are, are unheard of now. Um, things like um, lamini, Uphagia lamini, um, which are sort of the collector's species. You know, those are, those are the things that they're, they're, those forests are largely gone. There aren't a lot of those around. There are some, some great conservation projects working with them. But I also had some species that never even got names. Uh, those forests wow. were wiped out before the species actually got them. And, and again, when this all started, I was five or six years old. And, um, you know, back then there was no Internet and there were no books. There, there was none of that. I'm, I'm old enough now and, and I guess a dinosaur enough to say that. And uh, so I was culturing all my own fruit flies and, and going out and harvesting my own termites and doing all my own thing. Um, one other notable frog that came up when I was just a kid, he had some things come in from Chile, and I got a group of Darwin's frogs uh, to work with as a kid. And um, that plays into my career a lot because, lo and behold, I'm working in Chile with Chilean scientists, and we're building labs to breed critically endangered species, of which Darwin's frogs are now imperiled. And um, I taught myself as a kid how to keep and breed those, and I was uh, feeding them aphids off of rose plants. And, and, you know, sure enough, we've been able to do some of the same in Chile. But because I knew that I could breed them um, in captivity, when we started our program in Chile, I knew we needed a quick win to help us raise conservation funds and, and sort of get a little bit of media hype going behind our program. And so we actually started with Darwin's frogs because I knew I could do it. And sure <laughs> enough, within three months, we had them breeding in the lab and it wicked up the local media and then it wicked up the international media. And um, maybe from that point on, we were able to raise hundreds of thousands of dollars to build more labs and, and do a ton of field work. So it's kind of funny how a childhood interest um, sort of played into and fed into uh, a conservation program decades later. But I've actually had that happen with one other thing from my childhood. So I grew up in the Santa Cruz Mountains of California. And this will tell you what kind of a geek I was as a kid. Um, one of the things I loved doing was going out and, and collecting and hatching salamander eggs. I was wanting to know how to do that. And I taught myself early off, if you move the eggs directly, um, particularly early in development, they won't hatch. But if you take the divot of land around the eggs and move them that way, they're fine and they'll hatch. So fast forward now to a big conservation program with the reticulate flatwood salamander and the last really healthy population of them in the middle of Eglin Air Force Base one of the very first positive impacts I was able to make for that species was to go and teach everybody how to collect the eggs so that they would not um, sort of suffer through the collection process and you could get a much higher hatch rate. And again, it was, it was one of these crazy things that, that fed out of a real nerdy childhood growing <laughs> up way up in the, in the redwood forests of, of uh, Santa Cruz mountains. But Boy, you want to talk about a spoiled childhood. I mean, I grew up with Pacific giant salamanders and red-legged frogs and Encetina and all kinds of other wonderful amphibians. And then a father and a grandfather who took me out into the, the woods all the time. And, and, and then my dad starting me off with all this stuff. I really don't 
think that there's any other profession that I could have gotten into. <laughs> it, it, um, the, the discovery that you made as a boy of taking the earth around the eggs, um, how old were you when that, when, when you kind of figured that out, do you think? Oh, six or seven. <laughs> yeah. That's insane. Yeah. Oh my God. Uh, you know, back, back in, in those days, it was far enough back where the laws weren't what they are today. And you could even have things like Cayman in pet stores in, in uh, California. And I've got, or my parents have pictures of me holding up Cayman as, you know, three, four, five years old and snakes. And I was into it from as far back as I can remember. That's wonderful. That's really cool. Uh, and, and are there, were, are there any papers that talk about that? You have to forgive me because I'm, we're not, we're nerdy about all of this stuff. We're most knowledgeable about turtles and tortoises, but, um, are are there scientific papers that talk about that as, as kind of a means for, uh, successful propagation and handling of, of these species that you're trying to breed is actually moving the earth around the eggs. Is that something that's just kind of known in, in, uh, amphibian breeding? No, you know, we, one of the things that, that I've always tried to push for in the programs that I've run, I try to push the folks that work with me, and I don't want to say for me because my staff works with me, not for me. Um, I try to push everybody to publish. If you don't kind of close the loop and finish the cycle up by publishing, you, you lose what you, what you learned. And, mm-hmm. and it, it doesn't matter how many folks know it at the time they all kind of go off on their own career trajectories and, and things can be lost. So I'm a big advocate for, for making sure that whether it's a failure or a success, you get it into the literature somehow. And, and certainly we've published on the, the sort of rearing um, methods that we've developed with reticulate flatwood salamanders and, and, and incidentally, they're an incredibly difficult animal to work with in captivity. These things spend 98% of their lives below ground. Um, we don't really know what they do when they're living down there. And then they, uh, they come out and they breed in these depressions that ultimately the, the, the upcoming rainy season will fill. And then they go back underground and they have an abbreviated aquatic larval stage but they're in this mole salamander group in the genus Ambistoma, and they're notorious for being difficult to breed in captivity. Maybe not difficult to keep, but difficult to breed. This particular species, if the wind blows in the wrong direction, you've got trouble. So um, the strides or the steps that we've been able to take with reticulate flatwood salamanders, um, first and foremost, and this is super important, every positive thing we've ever been able to do. I credit all of that to my staff and none of it to me. I have a wonderful, wonderful group of people that work with me. They're very competent. They're very dedicated. They pay attention to detail like no other group of people I've ever worked with. And I consider it an honor to work with these folks. And and again, any any positives that have ever come out are, are from them. But we do try to get this stuff into the literature and, and we're we have published on rearing and hatching techniques already, but we've got a big pub in the works right now uh, for the first ever captive reproduction of that species uh, in collaboration with U.S. Fish and Wildlife. 
That's wonderful. That's amazing. Yeah, that's awesome. That, that's that's a species, the reticulated uh, flatwoods salamander and also the Georgia blind salamanders, right? Um, yeah. So, so those species, I've, I read, I, I've, I try to follow the stuff that you're working on. I also obviously read up on, on you more in preparation for this as well. And there was something there with those species um, around – collaboration and the the importance of working with uh you know micro and and macro and like local um authorities and and uh people in the community and and your team and and trying to gain traction and and work with people from what i would call maybe different sides of the track who have different skin in the game so to speak um and and that really excited me because that's kind of what I was alluding to a little bit in, in the lead into this show uh, just a few moments ago, uh, that you were kind of overseeing that process a little bit and 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 helping with that. And and I'm just wondering if you if you wouldn't mind speaking to that, because I think a lot of times uh, we will have people come to us and say, well, you know, why I want to get involved and, and I want to talk to the local government and I want to do uh, head starting project for spotted turtles or i want to do a you know ca captive propagation uh project so that i can get animals into the wild uh back in asia and people don't understand everything that goes into that how complicated and complex and multifaceted um uh, conservation efforts are can you speak a little bit to that like maybe uh use something as an example of maybe a victory or um, I think it'd even be uh, interesting to hear of, of maybe a project that wasn't so easy and didn't go the way that you hoped it would and, and, and why. Sorry, that's a lot. I, I, yeah. I tend <laughs> to ask questions, questions that are actually like 30 questions. Yeah. I think you're, the pitfalls are even more important on. personally. Yeah, right. Yeah, you're, you're spot on. And, 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 you know, here's the thing. Contemporary, the, the contemporary conservation landscape is unlike anything that's really existed before. The, the layers of, of issues are, are usually thick. Very rarely are you going to deal with a species that's dealing with one clearly defined issue. It's never like that anymore. There's usually 10 or 15 issues. Sometimes those issues work in tandem and make things even worse. Um, so I'm a big believer in big extended collaborations because those are the kinds of things that can tackle big complicated problems. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at the Flatwoods project, the reticulate Flatwoods salamander project, for example, um, collaborators range from U.S. Fish and Wildlife, Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, Eglin Air Force Base biologists, Virginia Tech biologists, people from our zoo, um, there are a lot of folks with real stakeholder claims in this, and I don't want to sell it like I've built that collaboration. These are folks that I have the good fortune of working with. But if you look at the overall collaboration, you have government, you state and federal, um, you have university, and then you have zoo and aquarium involvement. And the reason I'm pointing that out as you all well know, uh, there are plenty of detractors out there for zoos and aquariums. Um, I'm going to try not to get onto a soapbox here. And full disclosure, obviously, I'm making these statements 
as someone who runs a conservation program at a zoo. So there are inherent biases in what I'm saying, but don't make any mistake about it. For those who sit in front of zoos and aquariums and scream and shout at the top of their lungs and are filled with hate and anger, those folks have absolutely no idea what's really going on in the wild. With all due respect and coming from someone who spent his entire life out in the wild, including some very remote corners of the planet, like the upper Amazon basin, the wilds of Chile, subterranean areas of South China, uh, the mountains of Japan, uh, the middle of the Gulf of Mexico. I've worked in some pretty remote corners. It is a false romantic idea that we can all sing Kumbaya and put all the animals back in the wild. The wild is not that romantic place that folks lead you to believe that it is. Right. The truth is wild populations are now being impacted by things like environmental contaminants, emergent infectious wildlife disease, poaching, habitat loss, forest fragmentation, um, invasive species, the list goes on and on and on. So when you think about folks that wanna just go dump it all back out and think things are gonna be fine, that is both misguided it is uneducated, and it's it's a false set of, of uh, standards or goals that, that really does not exist. And they love to go at zoos probably because zoos are just the next nearest and easy target. And our zoo is no exception. We've got lots of folks that, that pick it and yell and scream, and they're real angry. And in fact, I've been targeted regularly by uh, animal rights extremists, and they do some really nasty things. Um, but zoos and aquariums are a piece of the puzzle, of the conservation puzzle. There is no silver bullet anymore. There's no one group that's going to lead us to a healthier planet. It's going to take a ton of different pieces to the puzzle. And those pieces are things like uh, not-for-profits, whether we're talking about uh, Nature Conservancy, World Wildlife Fund, Sierra Club, or we're talking about federal wildlife agencies and all the good people that work for those agencies, or we're talking about state wildlife agencies, or we're talking about universities. All of those pieces are pieces to the conservation puzzle, but make no mistake about it, zoos and aquariums have a big hand in this and have already played big roles. The animal rights activists love to make it sound like zoos and aquariums have never done anything. Species like the American bison would have vanished into the pages of books on extinction if, if zoos wouldn't have been involved. And that list is a very long one. So anybody who tries to say zoos and aquariums have not made a difference are terribly mistaken. I, um, I like to reference an animal rights advocate that we have here in Texas, and she loves to get on late night television and rail against zoos and aquariums. But the first thing she'll admit to you is that she's never been out in the wild. Well, I can tell you, having spent the better part of my life there, there are some things that you can see that will change your opinion. I can remember the very first time I came across a poacher's kill, um, and it was a jaguar that had been killed inside of a preserve and skinned, and you know the, the paws were removed and the teeth were removed. And when you see the mess that that is and you recognize where you were in a forest that was supposed to be protected uh, by people that have really said that they would do that, but it happened anyway, it really hits you. And it's, it's deeply personal. Um, I can imagine how folks feel when they come across elephant kills 
and rhino kills and giraffe kills and the list goes on and on and on and we could find those examples all over the planet the the bottom line is there are not enough wild places and there are too many people so without getting into a, a social issue here um you know, maybe if I really wanted to be a conservation biologist, I would have not gone into conservation biology, but I would have gone out and handed out free condoms for the rest of my life. <laughs> um, but the 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 they bottom line, used. <laughs> the the bottom line truth is the wild isn't that romantic place that people lead you to believe it is, and zoos and aquariums have and will continue to play a role. And Obviously, I'm biased, but the team that I get to work with at the Center for Conservation and Research at San Antonio Zoo, they are exceptional. They're dedicated and work working with some species that are really on their last leg. And we're, you know, just one zoo of many. AZA accredited institutions do wonderful things all over the planet every day. They're not a silver bullet. They're not going to fix everything, but no one stakeholder is going to. And, and so... When I talk about collaborations, it's why I like to, to bring in all these players, state and federal wildlife officials, not-for-profit zoos and aquariums, university biologists, because when you bring that kind of brain power into one room and those kinds of connections into one room, you have a better chance of tackling the very, very complicated problems that we're now dealing with. I don't want to sell it like everything needs to be taken into captivity to be saved. That's definitely not the answer for everything. But make no mistake about it, there will be species for which if we don't set up in situ or in, in cap captivity conservation breeding programs, they're gone. There's just there is no other possible outcome. Right. Right. What is your take on like the roadside attraction zoos? You know, they, I think that's a big problem that people see what happens there and they associate it with actual like AZA accredited zoos. You know, I, I've, I've got really mixed feelings about it. And, and here's why I say that. And, and the, the, my argument is kind of the same one for why I do still advocate for keeping uh, frogs in terrariums and fish in aquariums. I am for any pathway that we can connect the general public with wildlife, as long as it is not outwardly abusive uh, to wildlife populations in the long run. Um, I think that as long as harvest is managed carefully, I'm okay with fish and, and, and amphibians and reptiles on limited basis being harvested so people can work with them in captivity because I know the bond that that helped build in me for wildlife. And I've seen it in hundreds of other people. Um, when it comes to these roadside attractions, I don't like it when anytime animals fall into situations where they're not well cared for. Obviously, I have a real issue with that. If, you know, a given roadside st um, uh, organization does things like that, shut them down. I don't have any problem with that at all. But if they're doing good work and, they're, and, and the, the level of care and standards are high, I'm not going to say anything about them. You know, I, I mean, it, it would have to be a case-by-case -case basis and, and, and a, a review, you know, of a given place before I would say anything at all. Awesome. Can I ask you about the San Antonio Zoo and 
what you think sets it apart in in researching more i'm i'm kind of reading about the zoo and that sort of thing because i've never been to the san antonio zoo and and it just seemed like at least uh, in terms of what the zoo is putting out there, it presented itself in a different way than what I'm used to. It's so much more emphasis put on conservation and research as opposed to here's the animals you can meet at the zoo. Actually, at one point, I wanted to see what animals are on display at the zoo, and it doesn't list them. I've never seen a zoo that doesn't list that. So yeah. to me, it was a totally different approach. And then I just started thinking about like who you are and and – and kind of the work that I see that you've done. And, and I just, it got me wondering about the zoo. Can, can you speak to that? I sure can. Um, once again, I have the great privilege of working with a fantastic senior management team. And I'm going to argue that the crew at San Antonio Zoo is one of the best in the world. I, I am really blessed to work with, with these folks. And, and I mean that. Um, the CEO is a huge, huge conservation advocate. Uh, he's an amazing guy. Um, he has done nothing but support me absolutely in everything that we do. But the, the neat thing about this zoo and the way that it's geared, every single vice president there keeps conservation in their mind when they're doing something, whether we're talking about PR, whether we're talking about development, whether we're talking about concessions, um, I'm so proud of the people that I work with and how hard they work to make sure that even the products that we sell inside of the zoo, they're changing, you know, we're not doing styrofoam. We're really careful about the, the, um, the units that we make available to serve food, whether we're talking about paper straws or whether we're talking about biodegradable plates and forks, all of those details can have a huge impact over time. And particularly with an institution that sees, uh, a lot of people annually, right? So well over a million in, in, in annual attendance. And, and so all of these folks really focus on conservation and education. And incidentally, we have um, one of the biggest or the largest nature-based preschools in the world. We bought the school next to the zoo. Every semester, we've oh, got over wow. 250 kids that go through there at that age. And they're just steeped in wildlife biology and conservation. They get to visit the zoo every day. They know what's going on there. And they get to play outside and spend so much time out in non-traditional environments where they learn to respect the environment around them rather than manipulate it for, for their personal gain. So I'm very, very proud of the institution that I work for and, and the people that I work with. Um, but I got to tell you something of all the places I've worked, I have never been around a crowd that is as steadfastly committed to conservation as these people are. It's inspiring. You know, I mean, the one thing I'll say as a conservation biologist, the one thing you are guaranteed to get a heavy dose of is bad news every day. Um, it just comes with the, the, the territory and it's easy to understand why almost all of the people that were in my cohort that got into conservation biology aren't there anymore. Uh, you understand it and you understand things like depression sneaking in. Um, I think that a lot of people don't really realize what kind of a commitment that it takes to be 
uh, conservation biologist. And, and, you know, let me be the first to say I've made a ton of mistakes along my professional pathway. It's cost me a marriage. Uh, it's cost me personal relationships at, on some given years, I've spent as much as 10 months away from my family, uh, working out in the field. And this is not a poor me session because I'm not alone in this at all. I'm, I'm just trying to show folks what conservation biology is really like. It's not romantic and it's not this, you know, I'm sneaking off with a jet set crowd and, you know, drinking fancy drinks on a beach with little umbrellas and fruit in them. It's not like that at all. It's really hard work. Oftentimes you don't get to pick the people that you work with. You don't get to design your own travel schedule. It sets for you. Um, you know, grant applications and grant reports and deadlines. And it's, um, it's not really what people think it is. But the bottom line is, I had to ask myself a long time ago, what kind of a person would I be if I turn my back on the very thing that, that sort of fired me up? Mm -hmm. And that would be a, a pretty crappy person. So it's what I've dedicated myself to. And again, this is not a pity party in any way, shape, or form because there are conservation biologists who have sacrificed far more than I have. Mm -hmm. All you have to do is look at the news and, you know, conservation biologists are regularly the target of assassinations all over the world. So lots of folks have given their lives uh, doing the same thing that I do. And I have been targeted, make no mistake about it, uh, more than once. But I'm still here and I'm still fighting for it and I will. Uh, for the rest of my life. Um, but it's just not what people think it is. And, 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 you know, to get back to your, your point, I do consider myself lucky and fortunate to work with the people that I do because the, uh, all of the folks that work at San Antonio zoo all play a role in what we do conservation wise, whether they're selling something at a, at a concession stand or they're actually in my lab all of them contribute to our net impact around the globe. I, I wanted to piggyback off that a little bit <clears throat> and go back to um, kind of tie that in with uh, what you were talking about, the like people protesting, like the, the animal rights people and stuff like that. Can you talk a little bit, especially to people that might be wanting to, you know, being a, a conservation biologist one day, how you what it takes to develop that kind of thick skin and how, you know, cause basing off what you just told us and even going back to that, like you said, there, there's a lot of bad news and you know, the, all of us look up to people like you, especially because you're, you're receiving a lot of this on a bigger level than, than we are. And we're already receiving some of this stuff. You know, it's a social media age. We're all involved with animals, endangered animals. So there's always somebody who's, you know, has something to say, about what we're doing or how we're doing it or, or, or why. So how do you, how do you keep yourself so collected, so professional and keep those horse blinders on? Like, this is my goal. This is what I'm going to do. Even if it kills me. <laughs> you know, I make lots of mistakes and, and I've, I have definitely over the years, let some of that kind of garbage get under my skin. I have finally over the past, I don't know, five, 10 years gotten much better about it. There, let's just say that the We Want to Kill Dante Club has, has got a lot of members. And um, <laughs> you, you just get used to it. Um, social media is a funny place. You know, anybody be hiding behind the keyboards, an 800-pound gorilla. Yep. And, and they all have lots of, you know, 
real research that they've done for four seconds on Google. And, um, you know, they, they love to, to, to play that game. And I, I just, j- just to give you a recent example, had some Yahoo come at me. I had posted a picture on social media of a particular poison frog. And, you know, taxonomy is a funny thing. I, I love taxonomy. I'm a huge advocate. But when you talk about taxonomy from a scientific perspective, you need to understand exactly what it is. All taxonomy is when you talk about the name of a particular population of animals, it's our best hypothesis at that time for for what that is or is not. Right. And as technologies improve, sometimes our hypotheses improve. Look at what molecular analyses have done uh, for taxonomy. Right. It's it's it literally turned it inside out overnight, which is wonderful. We're getting, I think, better at what we do, but. You have to remember, it's the best hypothesis at that point in time. Ten years from now, maybe we're going to have a better tool, and, and it's going to revamp what poison frog taxonomy is then. So mm-hmm. as long as you keep in mind that what we call a given population is just a hypothesis and you don't take it real serious, you don't get angry, um, it's all fine. The problem is when you're someone breeding frogs in glass boxes and you can sell something for $400 a head at under one name and $200 a head under another name. You get kind of funny about what you're calling it. Yeah. So I had some Yahoo come at me with both barrels, you know, on, on a, a Facebook chat. And, oh, why do you think it's this? And why do you think it's that? And you're an idiot. And you don't know the current, you know, and this and that. And it's sort of like, slow down, Bubba. All yeah. the people <laughs> named all those frogs are personal friends of mine. I talk to them all the time. I'm up on what they published. I'm also up on what they haven't published yet. I'm real clear on it. Yeah. Having seen the better part of hundreds, if not thousands of specimens of individuals that are allegedly under one name or another, I don't, I don't get real serious about it because here's the thing that isn't discussed in those scientific papers. On one bend of the river, the frogs might have a color and pattern that fits the description. Let's go up two bends. Yep. They've got a in a pattern that fits another description, two more bends, and they're a mix of both, and they don't fit either description. Right. And, and all I'm trying to say is the Amazon Basin is a biodiverse place. We're getting better with our taxonomic tools, but I think there's probably still some work to be done in ironing out what some of these things are. Um, maybe there's hybridization zones. Maybe there's cryptic species involved. Maybe there's some other big, neat biological story. And incidentally, this is something I evoke when I'm talking to kids, um, and I call everybody kids at this point because I'm old enough to do that, but whether I'm in front of a a college audience or grade school kids, that's what's exciting about biology. There's still a lot we don't know. As a matter of fact, the vast majority is material that we don't really understand. We only know a little tiny slice of it. So this stuff's really still exciting to me. I love whatever new taxonomic papers come out and I do keep up with them, but to have somebody come at me with both barrels about how much of an idiot I am. And I don't know what I'm saying when I say something's in flux. Yeah. Sorry, dude, I'm going to toss 40 years of field experience out because you keep frogs in glass boxes. Have a nice day. Thank you very much. Right. Um, so, you know, to answer your question a little bit more, it's, it's, uh, you get, you get better at recognizing where people are coming from when they get angry like that right off the bat. Mm -hmm. Usually when people really go after you with that kind of 
oh, vehement anger. <laughs> um, there's something else going on. You know, yeah. I mean, what, what's the old saying? Hurt people hurt. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and, and mm -hmm. or hurt people will hurt other people. Yeah. Um, so w when when you realize that kind of stuff, I think you can sit back and you can kind of sidestep it and just laugh a little bit. But, you know, the bottom line is I always try to reconnect with why I'm here. I love biodiversity. I love sharing biodiversity with other people. Um, I want to bring it to the forefront, maybe change the mind of one or two kids that that will ultimately end up um becoming biologists themselves, much, much more successful biologists than I've ever been. Um, and, and I, I, I want to bring this to people because I think the average person in my humble opinion, they do care. They just mm -hmm. don't know. They don't know the backstory. They don't know what's at stake. They don't know about that because let's face it. And I'm only going to talk about the United States right now, but we downplay STEM fields terribly. And we've done a crappy job of teaching science over the years. We haven't funded these things the way that they should be funded. And we've really stranded our teachers in the classroom without giving them the materials and the background that they really need. Right. If, we, if we ever want to assume a leadership role in STEM fields, we need to be the big boys and we need to step up and we need to recognize it doesn't matter what your gender is. It doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. It doesn't matter what your sexual orientation is. You can make significant contributions to biology. We need to make sure that everybody has access uh, to strong STEM programs. And we need to start cranking out uh, qualified and competent people, regardless of their background, regardless of what they like or don't like, and, and with the color of their skin, any of that kind of crap. We need to we need to just generate good biologists, regardless of what they are. And uh, we've fallen so far behind on on what we should be focusing on. So, yeah, you asked how I can develop, you know, thicker skin. You know, there have been a series of things that have happened in my life that really have helped. My best friend was murdered in Colombia fighting for the Uwa indigenous group. Uh, he went back one too many times. Um, we had a huge disagreement before he went down for that last visit over exactly that. Um, my biological mentor tried to talk him out of going back down. And sure enough, as soon as he went back down, they got him and they shot him. So you have things like that happen in your life. And you realize, I think, what it is that you're fighting for and what it is in life that's important. Um, I view the relationships in my life now um, as much more important uh, than I had in the past. Again, I told you, you know, much to my own ignorance, it cost me a marriage, uh, tore my family up, and that's my fault. So, you know, it's it's easy to sort of get off on the wrong track, but but I think once you recognize the things that you should value. And I, I value the environment and the, the relationships in my life as the most significant things. I don't really care about the rest. It's easy to sidestep some Yahoo wants to argue with me about the taxonomy of a particular frog, it, particularly in light of the fact that it's an idiot who's never even been to the place where the frog comes from. Right. But even if it was someone who knew a lot, fine, teach me something about it because I'm not the world's expert on frog taxonomy. Right. So, right. you know, Cool. I, I mislabeled it. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Well, 
Can, can I ask you a little bit about, um, so right before the pandemic happened, there was a lot of talk with the AZA about kind of streamlining their process for including private folks to be involved in uh, species survival programs, species survival plans. Um, is that something you were aware of? I don't, I don't know if that's something that was like, okay. Um, so just, we hear a lot. Now the turtle room is, has a collection, we're a collection of, we have biologists and, but we also have a lot of people who have roots in the private world. And then we started the nonprofit to kind of try to, collaborate as much as we can. And, and that's why we're asking questions about that sort of stuff. But um, we hear a lot from the private side about that and, and people just being, you know, uh, nervous about what that means and, and feeling like their ability to kind of help on a, on a larger level is going to be taken away, that sort of thing. Do you have any thoughts on that from from, you know, the larger scale AZA side, just to kind of enlighten people a little bit on kind of what's going on there? I, I don't want to speak to official AZA policy um, because I don't want to misspeak and I don't want to, there are people that could be much more eloquent than, than I could be. Mm. My, my opinion on this matter is such that I think that private individuals have lots to offer. Um, I think that there are a lot of people with exceptional skills. Um, I don't know if you necessarily, I don't know the best way to go here, but if you develop some sort of qualification program or I don't, I don't know exactly, I haven't thought enough about it, but I would want to make sure that people that were really good at this were involved and, and were potentially included in setting up assurance colonies genetically diverse assurance colonies and making sure that we had enough animals uh, to carry out these uh, these populations of critically endangered species. I think what the goal is 100 years or, or whatever the, the standard is right now. So I've always been an advocate of trying to include people from the general public. I know that the general public and zoos and aquariums have always had sort of a tense relationship. And I know that at times it's it's headed south and at times it's gotten better. Um, again, I want to be really careful and I don't want to speak for the AZA. Um, yes, I am a biologist at an AZA institution, um, but I have been so busy uh, running the conservation programs or trying to manage the conservation programs uh, that we handle. I'm really not uh, well-versed in this. My um, good friend and colleague from Roger Williams Park Zoo uh, Lou Perotti, um, he's much more versed in, in AZA uh, goals and policies and things than I am. Um, but I know that the AZA, I know from meetings that I've been in, they're, they're certainly, they have been interested in the past at making sure that good private individuals are included in these sorts of things. It just gets complicated in how you want to set that system up. I muted myself. I'm embarrassed. I said, right. Uh, that, that was, <laughs> I pulled a Minto on that one. Speaking of which, it's time for our first feature. Steve, are you ready for that? Really, it's going to be our only feature. He's not ready and he's muted, so we can't even hear him. Take your time. It's okay. It's all right. We're professionals. Kevin, can't you do a live version? Yeah, we can. 
Minto's mailbag. Was <laughs> <laughs> lined up perfectly. I'm embarrassed. Yeah. So this is yeah, yeah this is the, the portion where where Kevin will ask a question now. Yeah, I'm gonna ask you a Let's few questions. Uh, a few questions. First is a few questions. Yeah, the first is from Dylan Whitehall, and uh, you had you know in our section there he said you you've done projects throughout the world like China and Japan. Uh, he had asked what turtles have you worked with in China and Japan. Um, I I have to admit turtles have not really been the focus of of a lot of the work that I've been involved with. Um, mm -hmm. I I have helped to support some some uh, in particular sea turtle conservation work. I uh, don't want to take credit for anything. Um, my my colleagues have have done all the work. I've just helped where I could. Um, there are undoubtedly uh, turtle populations all over the planet that desperately need our assistance. It, I'm I'm preaching to the choir, but um, that has not been the the focus of most of the work that I've done. Okay. Uh, the intro that we had up earlier, like the picture of you, you're holding like a monster that can be with King Kong or Godzilla. You know, uh, why would you pick that thing up? <laughs> so I was at a Japanese aquarium that specializes in displaying uh, deeper water wildlife. Mm -hmm. marine organisms and they have um a number of uh, giant japanese spider crabs on exhibit and it's easily one of the world's largest crab if not the world's yeah. largest species of of crab and um i wanted to try to show folks how big they were um that was a handful for me to pick that up and then mm -hmm. the crab is fine you you would <clears throat> be amazed at, at the the anger that some of these pictures have uh, have drawn on because folks think, oh, you know, you cut it up and made it afterwards. That crab is still alive and well in, in, in on exhibit at, at a uh. Japanese aquarium. You know, folks, they, they just love to jump to conclusions. Uh, just on that, that vein, one of the pictures that has just been the bane of my existence, there is a, a endangered bird breeding facility um, in Lima, Peru, and one of the guys who runs, it's a very good friend of mine, an amazing person who cares deeply, but he's just one of these guys who has the touch and, and he can get things to breed that nobody else could, could get going. And one of the things he's breeding are harpy eagles. Oh, wow. And um, there was a situation where there was a harpy eagle uh, as a hatchling that had not fledged yet and left the nest. And some yahoo took a a gun and shot it and, and the, the, the shot went in one eye and severed the optic nerve in the other eye. So the bird was completely blind. And if, if, if it would have been left out in the wild, it would have starved to death predictably. Mm -hmm. um, there were some people that had their wits about them that, that somehow knew about what happened. And, and this bird, long story short, ultimately ended up at this, this rehab facility that my, my colleague runs and, and it grew, they, they were able to, to rear her up to adulthood. She is an enormous, beautiful female harpy eagle in all the splendor that harpy eagles are. And, and there's a, a picture of me sitting by that eagle um, very carefully. That, that is an animal to have a healthy respect for. And um, the, the thing that you need to know about the picture is that because she's blind, they don't want her taken off and running into a wall or a tree or something and breaking her neck and dying. Um, so they have what are 
known as jesses around yeah. her ankles. And those are leather, leather straps, right? And it's to prevent her from flying. That is, in fact, the picture. And um, you would not believe the death threats that I have received as a direct result of that image. That bird's in chains and you're a corrupt freak and we need to cut your skin off and roll you in salt. And I mean, you would not believe the comments. Everybody wants to jump to the worst possible conclusion when they see something like that, rather than wade in and try to find the picture and actually read the caption where I explain the bird is blind. Those are Jess's to protect the bird's safety. They were able to raise it from this very young age to an adult female who might now be able to participate in a captive breeding program. So, you know, it's, it's a positive conservation outcome, not a negative one from something that started terribly, but that ties into what you asked earlier, you know, developing a thick skin. When I say death threats, I'm not joking. I believe it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, people oh, yeah. take stuff real serious and they don't bother to educate before they're talking about getting out the squirrely rifle and, and you know, and, and ending me. <laughs> Any close encounters? Yeah, lots, unfortunately. Okay. Wow. Uh, I have one more question, if that's all right. Sure. So you had stated that you've made a lot of mistakes along your path as a wildlife biologist. Uh, for any up-and-coming biologists out there, do you have any advice to make sure they don't hit those same bumps in the road that you have? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, you know, one of the things that I've seen in a lot of other biologists, and one of the things that I try to preach to the the good folks that I get, I have the for good fortune of working with in my department. The number one rule that you have to set up in a conservation program, it always has to be about the wildlife. It can never be about the person. So whenever I do um, social media post or an interview or anything like that at all, you, all of you guys know this isn't about me. Who gives a crap about me? This is about the wildlife and the wild places we are literally watching these things evaporate in front of our eyes. My favorite forest where I cut my teeth in the upper Amazon basin, they're gone now. All of those places that where I learned tropical biology, they're not there. Some of my favorite forests in Central America, they're all banana plantations now or oil palm plantations. We are losing this stuff so fast it can't ever be about the people. It has to be about the wildlife. And if you ever cross that line, you need to go. You need to, you need to find something else. Because as soon as it becomes about ego, as soon as you, you let personal needs sort of step in, you're not doing it for the environment or the wildlife anymore. And unfortunately, if you critically look at conservation biology or you look at any group of biologists – there's a lot of wrong stuff there. And, and I'm not putting myself up on a, on a pedestal or anything like that. And again, I've made plenty of mistakes, but it always has to be about the animals and, and, and the wild places. It cannot be about the person. So that's a big one. Um, the other thing that I would really emphasize, and we do with our interns, we have a big intern program uh, that, that, I think folks get a ton out of it. I'm really proud of being able to bring interns in. You need to make sure that you are always 100% transparent about what you're doing with conservation money, regardless of where it came from. 
and you need to be able to account for every last penny. Um, there, there was a joke at one of the places I used to work at that every year we would get audited and I was the only guy who could account for everything down to the penny. And I would even keep little handwritten receipts for taxi rides that were 74 cents. You know, it doesn't matter. Um, you need to be able to explain where, you know, where funds are and why and keep those lines straight. Because if you don't, that's a slippery slope. And boy, have I seen some people slide down that slope. Um, so, you know, the, the things, a lot of the lessons that I've learned have have unfortunately come from watching people do things that they shouldn't have done. Um, but you know, in personal lessons, um, I, I have never been good with, uh, striking a, a really healthy work life balance. I'm probably the worst person that you've ever met with work life balance. Um, and again, it's cost me and th those were entirely my mistakes. So, I would argue that someone wanting to get into this field, don't make the mistakes that I made. Pay attention to time for yourself. Pay attention to the personal relationships in your life. Take the time. Invest in those, those friendships and those relationships. Because in the long run, those things are what keep you going. And if you can't keep going, you're not really doing the environment any good. So you know, huge mistakes I've made and, and some really ugly ones, you know, I mean, my ex-wife is, is literally a saint for all the stuff she put up with. Um, so those kinds of things are things that I do like to share with interns. I feel like I can, because it's personal stuff with me. I'm not using anybody else as an example. When I talk about, uh, you know, personal relationships and making sure that you tend to those, um, I have a lot of students that will approach me at meetings or, or, or reach out by email or um, social media and they'll ask these questions. Those are the kinds of things that I emphasize. You got to make sure that you're honest about the funding and, and that you can account for everything. You've got to tend to yourself and the, and the personal relationships in, in your life. You've got to make sure that everything you do is always about wildlife and wild places and never about ego or any of that kind of stuff. You can't be working with something because it makes you look good. You, you need to be doing it because it needs it. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I'm very proud of, I'm proud of my team, we advocate for things almost across the board that are not charismatic, right? So not that hard to raise money for panda conservation, not that hard to raise money for wolf conservation, not that hard. And, and it is still difficult. I don't mean to be downplaying that. Um, those programs struggle. But now imagine trying to uh, pay for a conservation program for a small venomous viper that inhabits two relic forests at the top of hills in Mexico. You know, good yeah. luck. You know, who, yeah. who's going to yeah. give a crap, right? So I'm very proud of the fact that most of the things we work with inside of my department are non-charismatic. Um, I have the good fortune of working with another biologist on my staff, Dr. Andy Glusenkamp, and he's a huge advocate for these things. He's an amazing biologist. He's a great person to have at my side. But all of the other people on my staff, they've dedicated their lives to, to little nondescript things that most people don't even know exist, blind cave salamanders and, and, and such. So um, it's another thing that I can only say is a huge credit to the people that have managed me at my institution in that nobody ever 
has come to me and said, okay, Dante, now that you're here, now that you've raised some money, Mondays are going to be about elephants, Tuesdays are going to be about tigers, Wednesdays are going to be about rhinos. Nobody's ever done anything remotely like that. Instead, when they brought me in, they said, go play to your strengths, have fun. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I've been able to participate in years and years and years of deep sea research out on the Gulf of Mexico um, because it was a strength. I've been able to participate in subterranean biology, ecology, and conservation all over the world because it's a strength and biodiversity issues, whether it's in temperate rainforests of southern Chile or the upper Amazon basin or south China. Uh, again, if you can play to your strengths, I think you stand to do well or better than otherwise if in just being handed projects is really not the way to go. And it's certainly not the way that I've tried to manage the people that I get to work with. Awesome. It really excites me to hear it. You know, um, working in the veterinary field, I feel um, it, it always surprises me how often sometimes animal people can struggle with like interpersonal human relationships. And that's all we're talking about here. So we're talking about someone at the top of the zoo field and conservation world um, from our perspective, certainly. Uh, and, you know, you're talking about interpersonal relationships, working with people, uh, influencing others, uh, teamwork, you know, the things that you're maybe not thinking about when you're first starting out in these fields, because you're thinking about, I need to learn, I need to know more than the next person so that I can be the authority and I can have the right answers. And, and really it's, it's about learning so that you can be a part of that community. And so you can continue to learn forever. You never really reach a spot where you know everything or, or what have you, um, you know, I've you had, started, go ahead. I've had great mentors and, and I, I, I really, I have to credit them for, for, any semblance of um, sort of management skills that I have. And, 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 you know, the, we work with an incredible veterinary team um, at the zoo. I have nothing but absolute respect for all of them. And they have stepped in and saved my rear end more times than I can count. Um, but, it, you know, really one of the things I think that got me to a point where I value these things Maybe 15 or so years back, I, I sat down and took a hard look at what part of this sort of kept me going. And uh, aside from the wildlife and the wild places, which is always the place that I will primarily draw from, it's the, the, the incredible relationships that I've been able to develop over the years with all of these other highly skilled and trained biologists and ecologists, people that have dedicated their lives to the same thing, to making sure that the next generations get to see the wonderful things we've been able to see. And I think if you can focus on that and realize that we need more biologists and ecologists, not fewer of them, we need more programs, we need to be mentoring these people. Um, I am proud to say that aside from the, the, the other biologist on my staff, the, the rest of my staff, they're all women. And I have to tell you, they're all a lot smarter than I am. They have their stuff together a lot more than I do. And um, I am very hopeful that uh, some of these young ladies will go on to become the next leaders in conservation because, you know, their perspectives are, are they just every day, they, they open my eyes and I hear them say things that are just so insightful and so deep. These are wise people. And I think maybe the biggest contribution that I may end up having 
to conservation biology, it won't be anything that I do myself. It'll be one of these fantastic young ladies going out and really shaking shaking the tree and doing something incredible because, like I said, they're a lot smarter than I am. That gives Dante. me chills. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. I want, <laughs> I'm, so I want to let you know something really quick. I'm, I'm in retail management. I've been doing that pretty much my entire adult life. Uh, I've gone through countless hours of like leadership training, you know, and the way you speak speaks to your ability as a leader and not as a manager. Like you say, your management style, it's, you're a leader. It's very, very clear amongst your peers, the way you talk about them, how, uh, all their yeah. successes are theirs and not yours. It's, it's really influential in my eyes right now. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm very proud. That I got to even talk to you right now. Thank well, you. Well, yeah. you know, I, I mean it when I say it, um, the successes that we've had, for example, breeding Georgia blind salamanders in the lab for the first time, I don't want to take credit for any of that. You know, I mean, again, I was off in the field. These young ladies, they really worked hard to figure out some very, very complicated issues with even keeping these things in captivity, let alone getting them to breed. Um, so I mean it when I say it. it's it's not just blowing sunshine up somebody's skirt. It, it's It's real stuff. Um, it's, it's an honor to work with these people. And, and I, we have had fantastic interns. I, I mean, I don't know how it worked out that we got so lucky to have the quality of people, um, you know, work their way through our, our program that we have. And, and, you know, some of them have gone on to become medical doctors. Some of them stayed in the field. I'm proud of all of them. Um, they've, they've been fantastic. I really can't say that we've had a bad apple in the group. Um, to the contrary, um, we, we've just had great people and they really have made the difference with everything that we've done. Awesome. Uh, if we have time, a couple more questions popped in. Yeah, please uh, do. I'm gonna go, yeah. I'm gonna go a little bit out of order and I apologize if I butcher your name. Um, just the last name anyway, uh, Carrie Creighton. Uh, what advice would you give to a recent graduate looking for a career in conservation, specifically looking to work within the Southeast United States? Please. And thank you. Okay. Um, that, that's a great question. And you know, the, here's the thing, um, straight A students are a dime a dozen and, and I'm not downplaying grades at all. You need to have good grades. Um, if you don't, you're not even, you don't even get to step one, but to be competitive today, you've got to have something under your belt, some real life experience. Um, even if you weren't paid, I'm always a big advocate of suggesting that folks go out and, um, even if you're doing it for free, intern somewhere, get involved uh, with a project, whether it's at a university, whether it's with a state wildlife department, whether it's with a nonprofit, if you look hard enough, you'll find something. Um, the, when, when you think about doing that, you want to make sure that there are a few requisites that you can get out of it. In other words, make sure that if you do a good job, at the end of the day, you can get a letter of recommendation from some higher up with whatever project or program it was. Those are the kinds of things to dress up a CV. You need to be able to stand out. And it, you know, it's funny. It's incredibly competitive. There's no doubt. Um, I know because I know what happens when we offer a position in, in, in um, uh, my program. I know the, the quality of the things that come in, the CVs. Um, so you want to make yourself stand out. But there's more than that. Um, you want to make sure nowadays that you can give a good talk. You want to make sure that you can turn a camera on well enough to take a decent pic. Of course, with modern technology, that's not hard to do. You know, I mean, anybody could take the pics that I do. 
um, it's pretty easy because the cameras do it all for you. Um, but you want to make sure that you can do those kinds of things. And, and you need to remember certain key things. Humans are visually oriented creatures. You can put up charts and graphs all day long. Even if you're in front of a scientific audience, if you can't keep their attention, they're not going to hear what you say. And, and nine mm -hmm. times out of 10, if you want right. to be selling this to the public, you're not going to be up in front of a scientific audience. You're going to be up in front of the general public, and you really need to make sure to hold their attention. So right. you need to learn a lot about the cadence uh, that you have to keep when you're giving a talk. You pop between different images. Even if you cover a lot of, a lot of different um, slides in a relatively short amount of time, keep your audience engaged. Being able to give a good talk is hugely important. And nowadays, I, I think about maybe the last two or three job interviews I've had, they were all looking at what kind of a talk I could give. And they all wanted that big time because everybody recognizes now, if you really want to sell it to the general public and you can't give a talk, you're not functioning. Exactly. So, uh, you know, that advice for that, that young student um, is, is really important. And, and I, I think it's, it's something that, that I, would, uh, I would pay a lot of attention to. So, Kerry, practice your delivery. <laughs> uh, it's all about the final, question, <laughs> the final question out there was from uh, Patrick Higdon. What is your favorite group of animals to do field research on? Oh, man. That's, that was a question I had, Patrick, too. I appreciate that. Because yeah. you worked with a bunch of stuff that you've been really, you know, stuff in caves and crayfish and, and stuff way down, you know, deep sea stuff. And I was wondering the same. I'll be quiet. You know, it, it, that, that's, that's almost a, an unfair question because I have been so fortunate across my career to go all over the world to find uh, species inhabiting, you know, subterranean environments or deep sea environments or rainforest canopies. I really don't know that I could pick between them. Generally speaking, I'm, I'm really interested in animals um, that inhabit challenging environments you know, a deep sea environment, a subterranean environment, a forest canopy where it's really easy to dry out, so on and so forth. So um, I'm more interested in the kind of ecology that something would have than any one particular group of organisms. Wow. That's really cool. That's an awesome answer. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Kev, is that the last question you had? That's the last question. Yeah. Thank you so awesome. much. So, so before we wrap up, I did want to just talk about the book. This is the most recent book that you've published, right? This is it is. So can you talk a little bit about just kind of the, the, like what that process is like, just, <laughs> it might just be a question that only I'm interested in, but like such a beautiful polished work of art, really. I mean, the, the, like the photos in the book are just, it's incredible, this book. And, um, yeah, I just I really enjoy it, and just wondering what that what that's like. How long of a process was it? I mean, I'm sure you've been studying these things for so long. Um, yeah, what's the process like? You know the the book was was sort of a funny thing. I um I had a foundation support uh, the development of the book, which I'm incredibly thankful for. And uh, Johns Hopkins University Press was wonderful to work with. I still work with them closely. And in fact, it looks like they may be the publisher of my next book. Um, what initially was scheduled to be a two-year project quickly devolved into a 10-year project. <laughs> um, but what I was able to do was take a look at 
exactly the organisms I've been talking about, things that live in challenging environments, the bottoms of rivers and lakes, <clears throat> deep ocean environments, um, fossorial subterranean environments, so on and so forth. And I knew that those are groups of organisms that most people just aren't familiar with, but they're kind of the thing that I've been into uh, for a really long time. So I already started with a nice da uh, image set and then just worked from there. And, um, you know, again, this was one of these things where I just wanted to bring a uh, wildlife uh, to the general public. It's why I take the time with all the social media platforms. Again, this is never about me. It's why I can't stand most of the wildlife shows on TV. It's always about a person and a personality. That's a bunch of crap. It should be about the, the wildlife and, and the wild places because we're, we're losing that so quickly. So that was the emphasis in that book. Um, I wanted to talk about the threats uh, that we're putting at risk. All of these wildlife communities, all of them face very serious, very daunting threats. And, uh, you know, the... I'm incredibly grateful to Johns Hopkins University Press for giving me the stage and letting me dump so many color images uh, into a book because they really yeah. took, they walked out on a limb and took, took a big risk with me. And right. I can't thank them enough. There were a lot of folks involved in that process and um, they were all just wonderful, wonderful people to work with. Um, you know, in, in the, the books prior to that, um, uh, Cave Life of Oklahoma and Arkansas and Cave Life of uh, Georgia, Tennessee and Alabama, um, I got to work with incredible people uh, on those projects, and it was an honor to work with those biologists. Those are guys that have forgotten more than I'll ever know. Um, I really gained a lot uh, in learning about how to go through the book publishing process, right? It's, it's not inherently obvious. Um, lots of mistakes, and boy, name a mistake. I made it twice. Um, but you, you kind of learn that you bump your way through the first couple of times and then you get a little bit better at it. Um, so by the time I got to life in the dark, it wasn't that bad. Um, but again, the, the incredible professionals at Johns Hopkins university press, even if it had been my first time through, they would have walked me through without a problem because those folks, they're, they're the best of the best. That's really great. Wow. If if I'm ever in San Antonio, will you sign my book for me? Of course. Is, it, is that awkward? Okay. It might Sorry. devalue the book. <laughs> That's okay. I'm not interested in the re resale value. It's only so, awkward yeah. if you give him a signed copy of yours. <laughs> I'll sign a copy of his book and give it to him. And there just you go. Tell him how, what a fan I am. Yeah. This 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 is this is really great. I, I really appreciate you coming on. Um, and, and like I said, I think it was a really cool, you, you, you were in privy to our last conversation that we had last month, but, um, just talking about a lot of these issues and it kept coming up like, well, it's really complicated. It's really complicated. So being able to, to really talk with, with someone who knows how complicated it is, I think is really, was really important and, and really great. So, um, where can people, uh, follow you and, and the zoo and, and where can they go to find, uh, cool updates on, on things that are happening? Sure. So the zoo's got its own website, so zoo.org. And, um, a lot of what we're doing is up there, um, and, and managed wonderfully by our, uh, webpage designers. You know, I'm on Facebook and I'm on Instagram. Um, I'm on Twitter and TikTok. Uh, my kids are old enough now where they can help me manage some of those things because the, the honest God truth is I just don't have time to keep up. Um, but they, they, uh, 
they're really good about <clears throat> helping me with that and managing that. I'm kind of old school and I'm an idiot about a lot of that stuff, but, but my kids are, you know, they grew up with it. So they're really good with it. Um, so, you know, there's, there's, there's things like that, but just keeping an eye on, on the, the zoo's website is, is a, a good place. And, and the zoo also has a very good Facebook page as does uh, the, the center for conservation research, which is the program specifically that I run for the zoo. Awesome. 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 Well, thank you so much. Um, keep up the good work and, uh, we'll be watching. Yeah. Um, hey, guys. yeah. And for our viewers, um, we'll be back, uh, that, that wonderful thing where February turns into March and then all the dates in March are the same thing. So the first Monday in March is also the first, and we'll be back, uh, with Tyler Brooks as a guest. We'll be talking about landfills and hingeback tortoises. Um, yeah, I know it's kind of a weird, um, juxtaposition, but we'll be talking about it. <laughs> and then also, um, on the 15th of March, we, we will be here for a, um, a guest list show. And if you have any thoughts on what we could discuss, uh, if you're a, um, uh, an avid viewer, which if you are, thank you so much to thank you, mom, uh, then let us know what you, uh, might be interested in hearing us talk about. And um, later this week on Friday, I'll be on a, a TTPG Turtle and Tortoise Preservation Group live stream uh, with our friend Michael um, to to discuss all things turtle. So tune into that as well. Um, thank you guys so much for being here. This is a great episode, um, one that I will remember for a really, really long time. Um, Dante, thanks so much for being here. Thank hey, you so much. Guys. It was great. I really appreciate it. Most personal right. doctor out. Right? <laughs> yeah. Till next time.